I'm a huge fan of poultry, especially chickens. Like in the backyard, I think they're one of the best things that we can include in a homestead just from the egg production. But what I wanted to do was take a deep dive into chickens. And uh, I don't think there's anybody more qualified than Andrew on why the chicken crossed the world. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Thank you, uh, Andrew, for joining uh, as an author and somebody that has traveled the world with uh, diving into chickens. You are an expert on on somebody I want to visit with, being from Arkansas, middle of Tyson land, and uh, the, the contrast in the industrial versus regenerative. You tell a story in an incredible way with why did the chicken cross the world? And uh, so thank you. Thank you for joining us, brother. My pleasure. It's nice to be here. So what, uh, how did you even get to the point that this book was going to come to fruition? Oh, well, uh, it all started because I wanted to write a story about Bronze Age sailors traveling from Arabia to India. <laughs> and that led you to chickens. <laughs> <laughs> I got her. I got a reaction. Uh, yeah, so I, I I pitched a story to Smithsonian Magazine because I write about archaeology mainly, other things too. And yeah, there was evidence that there was actual uh, sailors, ancient sailors that were going from uh, Arabia to India. Pitched a story, and the editor said, "Well, that's interesting, but what what did they what did they bring back from India?" And I said, "Well, oh, you know, I looked around. Oh, they brought some." lapis lazuli they brought lumber they brought you know this and that and then i said oh and i think there's a mention that that they may have brought chickens and the editor said now that's interesting do the story about chickens and i was like no no I, i'm not a food writer I, I don't i don't do livestock and he said no 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 i mean go out and find out how the chicken became the chicken and i wasn't really very enthusiastic but they agreed to send me so I figured, what the heck? So I showed up um, in Oman uh, on the coast of, of Arabia and went to visit this archaeologist. And I showed up just as they were coming back from their afternoon swim in the, in the, uh, the Indian Ocean. And so I introduced myself and I said, oh, by the way, uh, so you found a chicken bone? And he said, chicken bone? He was Italian. He said, chicken. Hmm. It's like, no, 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 no. It was from a workman's lunch. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, no, no, that wasn't really an ancient bone. So, but but I have to say, to, to Smithsonian's credit, they they said, that's okay, keep going. So I went on, I went to India. Uh, I discovered that the red jungle fowl, which is the, the, the wild chicken, uh, exists there. And that just put me on, and then I became obsessed as I sometimes do. 
and decided, okay, if you're going to tell this story, tell the whole story. How did the chicken become the chicken from beginning to end? And I think you did that in, in a really entertaining and uh, educational way. One of the uh, big takeaways I had early on was that it wasn't necessarily food that caused the chicken to spread as much as uh, game bird fighting, which I was really uh, shocked by. How did you how did you come across that? Well, you know, you got to ask the question, you know, why did chickens become domesticated? Now, we know that cats became domesticated because they wanted to eat the mice that came when we started collecting grain. We started collecting grain and then the mice came. So the cats came and got the mice. Dogs, well, you know, we became the alpha to dogs and we would hunt with dogs, use them to hunt, benefited them uh, because they could be assured food, benefited us because they could help us get the food. So you got to think, though, why chickens? Because there are a lot of wild birds out there. And not many of them are domesticated. You know, most birds are still wild. So why the chicken? And people assume because of today that it's because of food. But when I began to dig into it, it looked like, you know, chickens early on were, they were pretty scrawny, shy birds that didn't have a lot. They didn't want to have a lot to do with humans. Uh, and what could humans get from chickens? Um, given that they were pretty scrawny, there are other birds who were bigger, had more meat. So then I started to discover that there was research that showed that that the wild chicken, the red jungle fowl, uh, which exists from Southeast Asia all the way to India, that they would hang out when people started first uh, growing rice and other grains. Uh, they would hang out on the edges of the fields because a certain kind of bamboo and things that they like to eat would come up as weeds. So and they would also eat the bugs. So humans started to think, wow, these these animals actually can be useful. They're eating the bugs and they're uh, they're getting rid of some of the weeds. And then at some point, we don't really know how, people started to uh, use these birds to fight each other. And probably Southeast Asia. And that's when people started to, to breed them uh, to fight. Cockfighting is still really popular all around the world. And it's probably religious at the beginning. The beginning was probably, instead of, instead of the army in my village fighting the army in your village, why don't we have, you know, let's have our chickens face off. And so it, in a way, it was kind of a way of like diverting human violence, get the animals to do the violence for you. And then eventually it became a sport. But first, it was probably a religious ritual. And if you go to Bali, which I did, uh, there they still use uh, chickens. Uh, they'll have a cockfight in order to sanctify uh, any kind of religious event that's going to happen. It's so, so fascinating. It's definitely not what I would have thought. I was, I was just assumed it was for food, right? Like in, uh, you know, the Polynesian islands, they just carry them with them to, to eat. And, and just the, how you laid that out, it was, it was really, really interesting. Something else that uh, kind of shocked me was the, that, that it did, it kind of went both ways, I guess, in uh, from from Asia, and uh, you you go into the Easter Island and how they utilized chickens. Um, what do you what do you think happened there uh, with kind of the demise of the society, and then then the chickens uh, there from? Well, yeah. So let's go back to like who were the Polynesians? These are people who left the shores of China, Taiwan, you know that area. 
and started to move across the ocean to settle these these uninhabited islands. And this happened, you know, many, many thousands of years ago. So if you're going to go off on a camping trip, right, you're going to you have to take your basics. You've got to take take your food, got to take your, your clothing, got to take uh, whatever it is you're going to sleep under. And so the Polynesians were really good at assembling, you know, a package of things that everybody would take with them. Uh, and dogs were one thing they took, as well as, uh, of course, chickens, because chickens were... Um, and rats as well, by the way, because uh, rats reproduce quickly, so that's good protein. Um, and so they, they took this you know package uh, with them whenever they went somewhere. So the fun thing about chicken bones is that we, we don't have a good idea of when these Polynesians arrived at different islands. It's very hard to track it because they didn't leave a lot of remains behind. But if you find a chicken bone, then you know it was put there by a human. You know... That, that a human brought that chicken bone there, that chickens were not migrating by themselves. They couldn't. Uh, so when I say, you know, why did the chicken cross the world? Well, the chicken crossed the world because humans brought them along. And the Polynesians were the first to really carry them over long distances. So Easter Island was kind of the end of the line for all those Polynesian islands. And uh, the chickens there are the ones that really, those animals really helped them to survive and prosper uh, until the Europeans arrived. And actually, I don't think that they, uh, the people of Rapa Nui, as they call themselves, I don't think that they starved or they uh, lost their society. They encountered European disease. That's what wiped them out. Uh, it wasn't uh, infighting because they had chickens, they had rats, they had dogs, they had all the protein they needed. Uh, they had sweet potatoes. So actually, uh, chickens were really central to the Polynesians being able to expand across the ocean. Too, too neat. Let's jump up to the European usage of chicken because that was such a stark contrast to what we are accustomed to, you know, especially here outside of the backyard type chickens. They raise them for food, uh, meat, eggs, but they do it in a a traditional way. Can you kind of lay out what you saw in France? And then I believe some some of the, the similar things are happening in Italy, but that France uh, aspect is so cool. Well, the, you remember that the European chickens in the, say, 18th century, they're pretty, they were still pretty small and scrawny. I mean, people, chicken was not something you wanted to serve at Thanksgiving. I mean, they, they were small. Um, but what happened was when East met West and you had European colonialists and explorers and merchants going to China and Southeast Asia, they were bringing back all these fantastic varieties of chickens that Europeans never knew. And so Europeans were crossing the Chinese and Indonesian and other chickens with the Western chickens. And this is what really produced the modern chicken. I mean, this was, you know, it, because they... They no longer were small and scrawny, but they were also uh, tougher and uh, like the European chickens and less less uh, likely to die of disease. So it was a really perfect mating of these two. And so that's where you have the first chickens that then become uh, sought after, uh, where chicken becomes really a, a food source. And yeah, so I went to a place called Brest, uh, Bourg-en-Bresse in France. And I went there because the chickens today, no matter how nicely you treat your chickens, no matter you know how much outdoor space they have, uh, and no matter what you feed them, they are still industrial chickens. 
The vast majority of chickens that you can find are chickens that were designed largely in places like Arkansas in the 1940s and 50s. So I wanted to find what were the chickens like before that. And only in this little area of France have they preserved a particular variety of chicken that is uh, particularly tender and uh, it's not that dry meat that we Americans have come to get used to. It's actually uh, you know, really, really delicious meat. And they have a secret and how they do this is what they feed them. So I went to this farm and the translator was late showing up. So I'm trying to use my school French to communicate with this French farmer. We finally takes, he said, just come with me. So we went out and the translator finally showed up as we arrived at this pen. And there were these very large cockerels, these, these uh, male chickens that were huge. And these chickens are special chickens that, that are, they feed them and then they slaughter them. And so I was trying to understand the process and, and the guy, the, 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 the translator kept saying the spa, you know, they go to the spa. And I'm like, I, I don't understand. What is spa? And she said, you know, the spa, like, you know, you go to the spa. And I'm like, oh, you mean like a spa? She said, yes. And I realized that she said, it's like a spa. It's a chicken spa. They go in and they're fed this really good food. They're kept warm. They eat as much as they want uh, for several weeks. It's the highlight of their life. Um, they have a great time and then they're slaughtered. And hey, it was, it was hilarious because the translator afterwards, as we were walking to the car, she was talking to the farmer and, and afterwards I said, what were you, you were bargaining with him. She said, oh yes, the chickens here are very, very good. And everybody wants one for Christmas, but they're very expensive. They cost a hundred or $150 for one chicken. Uh, and so it's, you know, I'm, I'm getting a good deal by being out here and getting my chicken. So the French really appreciate this, this variety that, uh, that they see as uh, not just an industrial chicken that is something you have as a sandwich, but it's a, it's, it's a treat. And they also pride themselves on treating these animals uh, like other farm animals is, you know, they're, there's a, a way that they're respected that, is simply not done and not possible with the industrial operations you see, particularly in the U.S., particularly in a place like like Arkansas. Yeah, the um, the difference in the taste as you were going through the book was kind of kind of eye opening. Can you describe what what that chicken tasted like uh, over there as a as a comparison? You know, I I, I really didn't understand how important taste was till I went to two places. Uh, first was, was France. So, so that night uh, we went to this wonderful restaurant in this little town and a bistro and they brought out the chicken dish and it looked like the worst thing I'd ever seen on a plate. It was just like, it was kind of this gray mass with a little bit of gravy on it. I'm like, no vegetables, nothing. But then when I tasted it, it was so, I can't quite describe it. It wasn't like any chicken I'd had. It was incredibly moist. It was almost like a very soft steak. Um, and it just tasted fresh and I've never had anything like it. Now, the other place I went to explore chickens was Vietnam because the red jungle fowl probably came from the area of Vietnam. So the, the original wild chicken. 
And I kind of, I went on a search there with a Chinese biologist to see if we'd go up in the hills and see if we could actually see them because they're very hard to find. They're very shy. Uh, they, they're very quiet. You have to be very, very careful. If you want to track them, uh, it's not easy. And I'm not, I was kind of noisy in the woods, so we didn't have a lot of success. We saw, you saw one or two, maybe. But anyway, that night we went down to a restaurant, this little village, and he said, I want you to order the black chicken. I'm like, okay. So this chicken came, it was black. I mean, the comb was black, the blood was black, the meat was black. It was, it was bred to be a black chicken, which in Chinese medicine uh, is a particular uh, good thing uh, for certain people who need you know, certain kind of attributes. So uh, it was incredibly greasy to my taste. So greasy, uh, like you cannot believe. And the Chinese biologist just laughed because he said, for us, this is great because a, uh, a chicken that's oily and uh, meat that's oily is prized. That's what you want. That's got the calories. That's got the taste. You know, dry chicken is terrible. And I realized that a lot of this is we've been trained to like something that is not very tasty. And how, how many billions of dollars are spent on people buying stuff in the supermarket to try and add some taste to that dry chicken? Uh, chicken rubs, you know, you name it. Uh, you don't need that for steak, but you certainly need it for chicken. So that's the price we pay. Lost the variety out there, you know, like today, maybe I need an oily chicken. But we Americans are, are very, uh, we're very, we're not very adventuresome in what we want to try. Yeah, just kind of culturally, we just kind of boxed ourselves uh, into this is just what it is, uh, the norm, if, if, so if to speak. The box will eat it. <laughs> yeah. Um, with that that industrial model, like I, I honestly have tried to come at this project because, Andrew, this is a bigger project. I just kind of want to understand, honestly, should we eat chicken? And if so, how should we eat chicken? And what I have come to is on on really the nutrient side, I I just am not convinced that we need to be eating industrial chicken breasts as a a primary source of protein and, and nourishment. Whereas you know I think the eggs and the bone broth from like a you know a stew hen or something I think it's incredibly nutritious. Uh, so that that. Should we, how should we, has led me to your book, among other things. But you go into uh, North Carolina, the Joyce Farms, and see a different style of the birds being raised. And and what contrasted that for me was that even with regenerative agriculture, they're still just using broiler chickens, right? It's it's really not that different. It it The taste is better, but no, it's not really actually different. A- Chickens actually, they they uh, they source them in France. They've tried to get non-industrial uh, chicken, um, and and from what I saw, and then they're raised locally. So they're raised within I think a 25, 35 mile radius of the plant, and and the actual slaughtering process was uh, was was really high level. I mean, it, it was they were using air drying. Uh, rather than washing, which the Europeans do, which which Americans don't do because it's more expensive. Uh, so the quality of the chicken there is good because of the the sourcing of the chicken, as well as I think the where they're raised, and uh, also because of the processing. And so all of these things I think make make 
and I don't want to do a commercial for Joyce Farms, but but I have to say, you know, they they do offer an alternative to the industrial chicken that we get in the supermarket. Again, it doesn't matter if it's organically fed. It doesn't matter if it's um, uh, it's allowed outdoors. It doesn't matter if it has excess space. In fact, chickens that are allowed uh, that don't have cages, uh, there is good evidence, good scientific evidence that they are less happy because chickens uh, will fight if they are in undifferentiated mass in chaos. So I think we have to let go of some of our assumptions that chickens want to be like us and instead understand the mentality of chickens. And then we can base the raising of chickens on that. And unfortunately, we don't have a government that provides us with clear understanding of the choices, because I think we all need to have variety. We need to choose. These are moral and ethical issues, uh, but we want to understand. I don't want to pay a dollar extra for those eggs uh, and just feel good about myself. Um, I want to know, in fact, are those chickens being raised in a way that is less cruel, based on scientific evidence, not based on how I as a consumer might want to be caged? Uh, and this is a real hindrance, I think, in, in us coming with coming up with really clear ways and, and getting the industry to pay attention to the need to not raise animals, particularly chickens, as cruelly as they do. With, with your experience of seeing so many different ways of raising them and the different types, what, what would be like the, you know, perfect scenario if you had like, say, a magic wand or, or area that we can drive towards? What would it look like for the, the best for, for everybody, including the chicken, going forward? It's tough because now we, as 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 a species, are, are pretty hooked on chicken. Uh, it's a it's a cheap protein, and now around the world, it's becoming increasingly the uh, the meat of choice. Um, but I think there are some things that can make a difference. For example, I mentioned this Chinese biologist I was traveling with. His what he's been doing is traveling throughout Southeast Asia and finding these old varieties that are not yet contaminated with the industrial chicken genes. And he's trying to preserve those. So I think one thing we can do is start with what we have. There are lots of chickens out there, incredible varieties of chickens, which, uh, and I don't mean just because of taste, but I mean because some of them are less vulnerable to certain diseases. Uh, variety is always a good thing, uh, genetically in particular, uh, when it comes to disease, when it comes to raising them, when it comes to ensuring that uh, one one coal doesn't move through a whole flock and knock them out. So I think we need to very much focus on the diversity of chickens that exist today before they're gone, before these old varieties have been replaced. Because I saw it in Vietnam, people were starting to buy the Western style industrial chickens and leaving the old style behind. So I think if we can get, get people interested in backyard chickens, but in a more radical way, like, can you source a chicken that's that comes that you know is not a result of genetic experiments and genetic breeding done in the 1950s? Can you get these French varieties? Can you get an Indonesian variety? I think this would be wonderful to spread these around the world. I think it would benefit chickens as well as humans. Just creating more of that diversity on, on the heritage breeds, uh, whether that's you know the American heritage or just from from around the world. I think well, I think that's that's amazing. Breeds, I have to say, it's a lot of it is is not really based on science. Uh, it, it's it, they might look 
wild or that might look like their heritage, but often they still are the result of uh, they mixed with the industrial chicken. So it requires a little more research to really know if the chicken that you're buying uh, is is actually truly a heritage chicken, or is it just a, a word that they put on the package to charge more? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not cynical about it, but I, I know that without clear guidelines uh, that companies, well-meaning companies, will will try and tug on our heartstrings and to open our pocketbooks uh, without necessarily doing the due diligence. Where that labeling and marketing and uh, kind of the term that's popped up regularly in that regenerative world is the greenwashing, the kind of yes. just tweaking it enough to where it's misleading, you know, like good intentions, but misleading where, where did, can we pull from what's a good model that you saw? Is it the French? Is it how they were trying to streamline or systematize how things are approached or marketed or labeled or what, what's a good example for us to look at? Yes, yeah, certainly the, the French had a, have a pretty good system uh, when we went to the supermarket there, they they had a way of describing what you could buy, uh, you know, what, organic, not organic, um, you know, heritage, non-heritage. They, they had very clear categories that were not marketing categories. These actually were government regulations about how you can categorize your chicken. And I think in order for consumers to make good choices, both ethically, uh, as well as when it comes to, um, you know, eating something good, I think we really need to have clear categories. People really think that cage-free is better. And there's a good argument to be made that cage-free chickens are not better. They actually suffer more. And if we really care about chickens, as opposed to just our conscience, you know, feeling good, then we want to have, we want to be able to make those informed choices. And the way to do that is to have a simple label that everybody can agree on that the industry has to abide by. This doesn't have to affect industry profits. Uh, this can really allow consumers to make the choices because people are willing to spend more for chickens that are treated less cruelly. I think that's been demonstrated, right, in the past 20 years. Uh, but to do that, we've got to we've got to be able to do it in a way where you can trust. So you know, cage free, maybe, maybe not, and that's the the dilemma for so many consumers like me. When I go into, I still have trouble. Like, what eggs do I get based on what I know? It's very hard to make a decision. And what we would really like to see happen is a lot more of this localism, a lot more of like doing it ourselves or getting it from a, a local farmer or a farmer's market that's supporting a local farmer. And how do we kind of break up some of that centralized food system? I mean, the centralization is a major issue, uh, I, I believe, wholeheartedly across the board, not just food. But how do we get back to educating is it is it in the taste is it simply by you know books like what you've got are there more resources where where do we get the information that's not skewed that's more objective to make this good decision as a consumer well it's a big question um and this sounds so self-serving for me to say well you can read the book um but <laughs> You know, and th that's the trouble is that there's very, there are very few places you can go 
where you can get information that is uh, is not based on somebody wanting to make a buck or make a little bit more, uh, or somebody who has a, a particular kind of fundamentalist point of view. Uh, so as a journalist, I'm trying to be really careful about the sources that I eat, uh, the sort you know what I take in food-wise uh, in the news. So I, I think you what people need to do is to find there, there's no one-stop shop here. Uh, I think we just need to be do a little more thinking about what does it mean to be cage-free? Ask the question, uh, is cage-free better? What does the science say? What are people saying about this? What's California, which is on the you know, leading cutting edge of, of a lot of uh, you know, how, to, how to treat chickens in particular, you know, what are they doing? Uh, can you can those regulations be applied to my state? How do I source those uh, a diversity, you know, a diverse chicken that is not necessarily just called heritage? Um, again, it's this is really tough. It just requires uh, focus and attention and not falling into, um, I guess, the slogans that that tend to go with with all sides of this debate. Um yeah, so there's not much of an answer, but I, I think I think people just need to to look at their daily activity. What do you do when you get a chicken? What are you after? Are you after that cheap protein, which is fine? You've know, got to feed your family, but is there an alternative? Uh, is there, you know, Joyce chickens? Well, maybe it's more expensive, so maybe once a week I could do that. You know, there are choices we can make in our daily lives that won't necessarily solve the problem. Um, Finding out who is your local farmer. But if you have a local farmer, what is the chicken? I mean, it might be a chicken that they just bought from uh, uh, that is just an industrial chicken that isn't any really any different. That still suffers as it gets older and it's fed and it's designed to basically suffer so that it can produce that large breast. So you have to ask that farmer, where would you get that chicken? And how is it different from the chicken that is being uh, produced among, you know, the 100,000 that's that's down the road at the chicken farm? So I think people just have to uh, be more curious. And and that was kind of my point with the whole, even in the regenerative aspects, outside of, of Joyce Farms, uh, it's still a broiler chicken. Like, uh, it's still, it still comes from that chicken of tomorrow genetics that it's grow extremely fast, be inner or a uh, food efficient. And uh, it's still kind of the same thing. And that's where I really question, should we be eating chicken that way? <laughs> you know, should we be eating something that grows extremely fast? Uh, and, and what does the nutrients break down even say, uh, to that? So I, I'm glad that you brought that up because the type of chicken, like to me, it makes more sense to have some sort of like a dual purpose breed that it, it's not a super fast grow and you get the benefits of eggs. And then later in life, now you have a meat option in the, a stew hen or, or whatever. Uh, but uh, just a, a it, it just when you start looking at, say, cattle to the chickens, you've got the equivalent of meat is, you know, one and you've got 600 pounds versus you're going to have to have three, four hundred chickens to equal that. And, and it just. To me, it just doesn't make sense. But uh, I am a huge fan of eggs and, and broth again. Well, I think that, that we, this is really something for consumers to put pressure on politicians and producers. You know, we need to be clear about what we want and then we need to organize. Uh, 
I'm a journalist, I'm not an organizer, but I can certainly see that, you know, anywhere in the world, if you want to do something different, you've got to get together and, and find like-minded people. So uh, and the, the backyard chicken movement had that potential, but it really didn't, it didn't come to full fruition. In other words, it never pressured Tyson or another industry to really do things differently. And places like California are taking those steps. But I think consumers need to know what is okay and what's not okay. And then, and then make your voice heard and talk to people about it. Uh, because convincing Americans not to buy that cheap broiler chicken is going to be, it's going to be, it's a massive political effort that's going to require lots of alternatives like, okay, fake chicken, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Fake chicken would uh, relieve the suffering of live chicken. So maybe that's something that consumers can support more. So there, there are a lot of different avenues here, but ultimately this is about people organizing and, and, uh, and communicating what's important, what matters. And, and just accurately understanding what's going on, not, uh, not just getting tidbits and, and making assumptions too, or just listening to agenda driven, uh, influencers, uh, influences of different sorts. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. What, what other books or what other projects do you want to, uh, you know, tie in here other than the incredible book that I, I've, I've listened to it twice now, um, driving, always listening to books, but what other, other projects do you have going on and where do we find what, where, where all of your goodies are? Great. Well, you can go to my website, www.andrewlawler.com. And I do have, let's see, this month's National Geographic has got my story about the Dome of the Rock on the cover, uh, about Jerusalem. And then my paperback comes out next week under Jerusalem, the buried history of the world's most contested city. So I went from chickens to uh, Jerusalem with a, a little stop at the lost colony of Roanoke uh, in between. Um, so you can go to my website, andrewlawler.com and see what is of interest. Well, thank you so much. I cannot wait to check out uh, your other other project, especially the Jerusalem, that one. That sounds really, really interesting. But uh, thank you again, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast. We hope that you have learned something new and that you are inspired to adopt regenerative practices in your community. Remember that by working together, we can create a sustainable and abundant future for ourselves and for future generations.